The Old Testament reading, which is uh, also the sermon text, is from Jonah 2, kind of right in the center of the book. Jonah's been uh, swallowed by the whale, and this is a prayer that he prays. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving and sacrifice to you, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-16, through this is a continuation of the 1 Corinthians reading from last week, which Dave talked about. He's going to talk, Paul's going to talk in here about secret wisdom and uh, the, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And so just a, a reminder that what he's talking about, which he does, it's, it's mentioned last week's reading, but not so explicitly here, that the wisdom of the world is strength and being smart. But the wisdom of God is... God dying on a cross, which is absolutely utter nonsense, right? That God could fi- fix the problems of the world by dying. And yet that's the wisdom, that's the wisdom of God that he talks about here. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, pro- did not come proclaiming to you the testimony, testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. 
For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Glory to You, O Lord. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. So in Jonah, uh, the pace has been pretty quick so far in the story. There's a lot happening in a short amount of time. And uh, the writer of Jonah gives us the details kind of in a -a rat-a-tat-tat fashion. Jonah Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah doesn't want to do it. So he takes off. uh, He bolts. He's running away, right? He finds a ship, first ship he can find, pays the fare, goes down into the hold. There's the storm, and they're trying to save the ship. And uh, they have this like conversation in the middle of the storm, what to do. He gets thrown in the water. And then the story just sort of stops. It, it, it immediately uh, comes, to, come to, comes to a halt. And so Jonah gets thrown into the water, and, and, and you know what's going to happen next, right? He's going to drown. This is what happens when you're out in the middle of the ocean. You get thrown into the water. And the story just stops. And then what you have is this prayer out of the heart of the ocean. Uh, this prayer is super important. It's one of the things that the writer is telling you uh, by giving you this fast story. And then this extended prayer is that This prayer is super important for what the story means. This prayer is about mercy and uh, about repentance. And it's about Jonah's brokenness too. And it's about Jesus. And the story is going to pick up uh, next week. And it's going to not be as fast as the front half of the story, not as fast as chapter 1. But it's going to get back to a normal narrative pace. But don't forget this prayer. This prayer here. It's funny that it's... Do you think it's interesting that it's in poetry? Like he prays this poem. That's weird for me and you. I don't. If anybody in here writes poetry, I know some of you do. Um, it's not the kind of thing. It's the kind of thing. So I was a creative writing minor, and you take a class on poetry, and they talk a lot about revision and uh, spending a lot of time uh, thinking about what's the right word to use here. Not just the meaning of the word, but the sound and the shape of the word. Uh, and so for us, poetry is not a normal thing. Uh, in our culture, like not a lot of people are interested in poetry. In their culture, though, poetry was the language of worship. The entire Psalms is poetry. Big chunks of prayer in the prophets is poetry. Poetry is like your default communication mode 
when you're going to have worship, when you're going to meet with God. It's not weird that Jonah would pray in poetry here uh, in, in, in this. And so basically what I'm saying is this, is that in the language of Scripture, what's happening here is worship. What's happening is worship. And so what I want to do today is this little worship service that jo- Jonah has. It's so weird that what we can do is we can look at this worship service and ask ourselves the question, what can we find out from worship about this? So what I'm saying is this, is like, if you say, take a worship service at St. James, and what can we extrapolate about worship from that service? This is so normal, we do it all the time, that it's possible that we will normalize something that's just extraneous that we've added. But Jonah's put in such a position, it's so weird that we can look at this little worship service he's having in the belly of this whale and say, what's going on there that we can say, that's worship? So first of all, here's a few things. Uh, actually, let's, I'm going to read the text again, if we can do that real quick. Um, and, and talk about a few things. I called out to the Lord, Jonah says, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. That is a weird word, right, Sheol? It's the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. In the Hebrew mindset, it's where people went when they weren't alive anymore. It's like the world of the dead. Uh, and so what Jonah is saying is, I, I, I realize that I'm a dead man. Like, I'm in the ocean, so I should be dead. I also just got swallowed by... Uh, a whale, which again should be dead. I'm praying this prayer, and I'm praying this as a guy who realizes I'm a, I, I'm a dead man. Unless some miracle happens, I'm a dead man. And God heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Because you check out all the, like the, the the sea language in this poem, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. More, you know, drowning language. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain eyes. So this is a, a real quick note about these last two verses. But this is what the sailors, the sailors are praying to their vain idols for help. Jonah knows the one true God. Jonah encourages them, like, look, I, I serve the God who created the land and the sea. That's the only God who can help us out of the situation. One of the things that Jonah takes from the situation is it's vain to worship false gods and false idols. It's only the one true God who can actually give us salvation. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So the, remember the sailors at the end of the storm when they threw Jonah overboard made these vows and sacrifices to Yahweh. Jonah is saying, that's, that, that's got to be me too. Like if you're the one true God, the pagans should worship you and your people should worship you too. I'm going to make vows as well. Salvation, this is the last line, which is very psalm-like, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Okay. What can we tell from this, uh, this poem here, this psalm about, um, about worship? So first of all, uh, worship, I'm going to give you a few negatives here to start off, if I can. Uh, worship is not primarily emotional. Worship is not primarily, worship is not about our feelings. Right? So, uh, if, if, if this is what you think, if, if this is what you don't think, if you're like, yeah, that's true. Like, please pay attention because I'm going to get to, get to all of us here in a second. Worship's primarily not about emotions. And let me tell you why. 
if your target is emotions, if your criteria for what makes good worship, like I just like had this powerful experience where I felt lifted up to God, if that's your criteria, what's going to happen to you is that you're going to filter out all of your other emotional states where God wants to meet with you. You understand what I'm saying? Like Jonah's having worship and he's not feeling great right now. He thinks he's dead. And if his, if, if his, if, if, if in that moment when he's sure that he's dead and he's in distress is a word he uses here, if he's like, well, there's something wrong here, like God's abandoned me, then he's going to miss out on an opportunity for really, really excellent worship. And if you make, if you make an, an emotional high or like some sort of emotional reaction, like if you come to church and you're like, I, did, I just didn't feel anything, that, that's not necessarily an indication that you have not met with God. Emotionalism, emotion can't be your standard for have I met with God or not. Else, you will cut yourself off from, what if you're bored? Does God want to meet you in your boredom? What if you're, like, in intense grief? That's an easier one because a lot of us run to God in our grief. What if you're apathetic? What if you're tired? What if you're lonely? What if your foot hurts? Does, does not God want to meet with you in all these examples? Now, if you, set, if you set up like powerful emotions as the standard for good worship, you're going to miss out on some really, really great worship that has nothing to do with you feeling good and may actually hinge on you feeling bad. Sometimes our bad emotions are the portal through which God meets us. Don't cut yourself off from that. However, so th- another way to say this is, if worship is about relationship, if, if worship is about you and God, me and God meeting, Allow that relationship with God to be full orb. To be, do, do, you, do you guys have friends? Do you, you, know, you know that level of friendship where you hang out with somebody and it's just all like laughs and good times. And that's what, you know, that's what that friend is for. Maybe not super close friend, but that's what that friend is for. There's another level to friendship. For those of you who have really close friends, you'll know there's another level to friendship where you can actually be broken in front of them. You can actually be quiet in front of them. You can be angry in front of them. Worship with God wants to get to that level of friendship. If you're just like, it's got to feel good or it's not worship, what you're doing is saying, like God's just a kind of a, you know, he's kind of one of my hangout friends, you know. I'll go watch a football game with him. I'll have some drinks with him. But like, he's not the kind of friend that I actually want to be open about my own brokenness or about my loneliness in front of. Don't allow that to happen. Don't cut yourself off from that by making emotion your standard. Now, also, um, uh, intellectualism is not the standard for so A lot of you are like this, especially if you grew up in, in uh, LCMS circles. Uh, the temptation is to think like doctrinal stimulation in my brain. That's worship. And that's also uh, way too simplistic. If that's your standard, be honest with you. Be, be honest with you. Be honest with me. Uh, there's a, uh, a, there are times when you go to church and you just don't learn a whole lot or there's nothing really super interesting being said. And then what's the, what, what's the default mode? Well, you know, I didn't really get it. Again, I didn't really get anything out of it today. For some people, not getting anything out of it is I didn't really have a great feeling. For some people, not getting anything out of it is I didn't really learn anything new. But this is not the standard either, right? You ever had, a, again, you're way more as, as a human being, there's way more to you than just your brain. God wants a relationship with all of you, not just your brain. It's a safe thing to do. It's a safe thing to do to say, my relationship with God is a matter of these 
uh, knowledge points that I have. That's safe because it cuts you, cuts God off from your emotions. I don't really have to feel anything and I can feel good about myself. Or it cuts you off from your decision making. Do you, do you uh, some of you have been in meetings before with a doctor where you get really, really bad news about some uh, sickness you have, maybe cancer. And they always tell you, right? They always tell you to take somebody along with you. Because when the doctor says, uh, look, you have cancer, you'll instantly shut off. Like your brain's not going to hear anything he says about the treatment plan or about the prognosis for the future. And so it's always good to take somebody else with you to like remember all that stuff, right? Now, why is that? Because in your hour of deepest need, information just doesn't do it. Information is necessary. You're going to need to know the treatment plan. You need to know what the diagnosis is. But it's not what your heart really needs. It's not what you as a human really need. What you really need is salvation. You really need to be cured from cancer. Right? And what we do is we come to church and we're like, I just need to know the information. It's a lot of us. I need to know the information. And what you're doing when we do this, what we do, what we do when we do this, is we're cutting ourselves off from what we really need. It is a lie of the enemy that you've got good doctrine, right? You believe good stuff. Augsburg Confession, right? You're good to go. That's actually, that's a nice, easy way to be away from Jesus. What we need is a relationship with God, all of us. Volition. Uh, Worship is also not purely volitional. A lot of us have this, but by the word volition, it's just a fancy word that means a decision that you've made. Like your will, what you've decided to do. A lot of us think that like worship is, I get up and I make this decision to go to church. And I've gone to church and now I'm good, right? Again, uh, we're way more full-orbed as human beings. For like just a decision that you've made to be here, which we'll see in just a second, actually wasn't even your decision. To be the real deal. To be the full thing. To be worship, right? Worship, in fact, let me step in. Let me, let me, let me give you a positive real quick here. Worship involves all three of these things. Real Connection with God will involve your emotions, your intellect, and your volition. Well, let me look at this from the uh, look look at this with you from the text real quick. First of all, real worship will always be intellectual. Look at what Jonah says in in uh, verse seven, uh, second line there. He says, "When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. He had a, he had the, the, when he was in his hour of deepest need, his mind, the Holy Spirit turned his mind to Jesus. Like if you don't." If you don't know Jesus and his reality, if you do not have the truth about God in your head, when the hour of deepest needs comes, you're not going to have any sort of place to, you won't know where to go for your emotions to be fixed or for your volition to be fixed or for your body to be fixed or your relationships to be fixed. To know Jesus, which I know it's way more than an intellectual process, but it's not less than an intellectual process. It's important that we know God's word and that we know truth and that we remain committed to it. Also emotions, though. And look at the different types of emotions. Two different ways here. Uh, Look what Jonah says in verse 1. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. This is an emotion. Right off the bat, it's an emotional word. Like, I'm distressed. He knows he's going to die. And so I called out to the Lord. Look at the emotion at the end of the the very, very end of the psalm. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols. I'm sorry, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. So my heart is going to well up with this thanksgiving to you, knowing and trusting that you're going to uh, save me. If you have no emotions, if you think that you can come and worship God, whether it's here at church or on your own, 
and you don't really have to feel anything because you have the truth in your head, then you're not really worshiping. Why? It's because God wants a relationship with you. God doesn't just want to know your birthday and you know his birthday and he knows your favorite color and you know where he likes to eat best. He wants to have feelings for you and he wants you to have feelings for him. He wants your distress. He wants your thanksgiving. And he wants all points in between. And if you're not experiencing this in worship, and again, none of this is perfect. There will be times when we don't know right. There will be times when we don't feel right. None of this is perfect, but if that's not the target, then we're missing out on real worship. Worship's also volitional. Uh, very last, we, we looked at this a second ago, very last verse. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah's like, because I've met God, I'm going to make this decision to worship Him. I'm going to pay my vows. I'm going to pay my sacrifices. What part of you is not or should not be? What, what part of you is exempt from worship? According to Jonah 2. There's not a single part of us. God wants all of us and he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want us to find those little safe spots where we can give him something. I'll give you Sunday mornings. Or I'll give you, I believe in the doctrine. Or I'll give you my good feelings but not my bad feelings. God wants every single last bit of us. And when God meets with us, in every last single last bit of this, that's what worship is and what, what worship should be. Okay, a couple more negatives. Worship doesn't depend on location for its effectiveness. I, this is, I mean, this is just right off the surface of the psalm, right? So we're going to talk in a few minutes about like fixing the lights in here, and I think that the lights should be fixed in here because they're pretty lame. But that actually doesn't control if worship is happening, right? or the style of the sanctuary, or the style of the service, or. The space doesn't matter. Jonah is worshiping God in the belly of a whale. Right? The, 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 uh, the space that we're in doesn't determine, like it doesn't have to have, like, so, so some of us will feel like, I, I felt like this about worship sometime in here. You guys know this, I've already told you this. I come in and, you know, the orange carpet and then the white bulbs, and I'll think, oh man, it has nothing to do with whether God is meeting with us or not, right? So, some of you, uh, like, the setting has to be perfect for your devotional life to happen, right? You need to have the cup of tea there, and it needs to be nice and quiet. And that's important. I, you know, you find a spot where you can pay attention to the voice of God as best as you can, but worship is actually not dependent upon that. You can have, you can worship God in the middle of a stadium. You can worship God in the middle of rush hour traffic. We, we, don't let the space to find how you can worship or not. And uh, whatever space it is, whether it's the space where you have your devotional life or the space in here. Last one, and this is last negative, and this is maybe the biggest one. Uh, worship does not produce salvation. Right? Salvation is prior to worship. Worship doesn't produce salvation. Like it, worship is not going to rescue you. There's a myth that we have that discourages some of us that goes like this. Like I had this worship experience and it could have been devotional, it could have been in corporate worship, it could have been listening to a song on the radio and you have this worship experience and you think, okay, so now I'm charged up and ready to go. And it's discouraging when 30 seconds later you're like, you're down out of it, right? You know, so like, come to church and I'm like, I, I, I'll talk about marriage and I'll think, okay, I'm, I'm going to be, like God, help me to be a better husband. I'm, I'm convicted that I need to be a better husband. I feel motivated by the Holy Spirit to be a better husband. And then, you know, 15 minutes after we get home, I'm kind of snarky with Angela. Where did that come from? I just had this sort of like mountaintop experience where I was like, yes, I'm on fire, God. And then I fall. 
Don't be discouraged by that. Worship is not designed. Good worship is not designed to rescue you. That's Jesus' job. I'll give you an example here. Verses 1 through 4. All right. Jonah's praying, and he's like, I'm in distress. I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm going to die. In verse 4, he says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. There's this moment of faith where he's like, I am going to see, I am, God, you will not abandon me. I will meet with you again. And then verse 5, he's right back. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Now, by the time he gets back to verse 7, he's confident once more that my prayer came to you and into your holy temple. So what, what is Jonah's worship life look, looking like? It's like this, right? Do, do not be discouraged by this. Like, like uh, uh, the roller coaster of spiritual life, like somehow something's gone wrong. Well, I guess that was fake worship. I didn't really mean it. This is actually a part of the fallen condition, is that the Holy Spirit is warring against the old human inside of you. You're going to have moments of like great intentions. In those moments, I find that a law in my members, Paul says in Romans 7, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. You're going to be battling this the whole time. Do not abandon worship because like it just didn't work, or I, you know, I got real excited about my relationship with Jesus, and then I just, it just didn't turn out to be that exciting. Worship's not designed to save you. Jesus is. Worship's going to be a reflection of that. It's going to be a reflection of God's salvation and your struggle with sin. It's going to be messy sometimes, all right? Second thing here is Jonah, in the whole story of Jonah, you see what happens? Jonah has this amazing experience. He worships God. He grapples with his own brokenness, his own rebellion, his own propensity to dying when he's underwater. God saves him. What does Jonah do in three and four? You would expect if the typical myth of like great worship leads to great Christian living, you would expect that if that were the case, Jonah would bust out of there and head off to Nineveh and like accomplish great things and say, yes, God, I'm so glad that you rescued me. I'm on fire for you. It's one of the things I dislike about a Christmas carol. You know that story? Uh, uh, the Charles Dickens story that's, uh, you know, the uh, George C. Scott movie. Or uh, Mickey Mouse, if, you, if that's your uh, speed. Uh, so uh, here's this guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, and he gives up his entire life to greed. His soul, and if you've ever known anybody who's completely greedy, greed, like any other sin, completely corrupts your soul. Right? And, and then he goes to bed, and he has this crazy dream. And the next day he wakes up, and he's the nicest guy ever. Like he's throwing money at people. He's finding little orphans of the, the, the scrubs that work for him and like paying for their medical treatment. It's actually not realistic. This is not what happens to Ebenezer Scrooge. You're not going to have a dream, even if it's a crazy dream like that. You're not going to go to church and be like, yes, from now on, I am ace husband. That's not the way worship works. It's not the way. It's not. It's not the way Christian living works because it's not the way our human nature responds to the gospel. What you have instead with Jonah is this powerful experience. God, God delivers him in a way that's more powerful than maybe any way that any other human's being delivered. He immediately goes to Nineveh, preaches the gospel. The people of Nineveh repent, and he gets ticked off, and he says to God, "That's why I didn't want to come here." That's what I'm talking about, God. I knew that if I preached repentance, they would repent. That's exactly what I didn't want to see happen. He's not really that changed of a person. He's the same guy who didn't want to go on mission in chapter 1 is the same guy who didn't want to go on mission in chapter 3. The only difference is God forced him to go on mission, 
by sw- having him swallowed by a big fish and then spitting up, uh, spit up on land. God forced him to do it. It didn't actually, worship's not going to change you and make you a better person. And if that's your target, you're going to be chronically disappointed. Okay, enough negative stuff. What is worship in this text then? Worship, let me give you a little bullet, uh, let me just give you a little definition and then we'll unpack a little bit. Worship happens when God meets us in our brokenness in Jesus. There's three parts to that. Worship happens when God meets us, when there's an interaction, a personal interaction between us and God. In our brokenness, it doesn't stand somehow apart from who we are as sinful human beings. But part three, in Jesus. It always happens in Jesus. All right, so first part, God meets us. Jonah did not decide to meet with God here. Like God said, you can't run away from me. You can take off and hide, but I will come and find you. Worship is always God's decision first and foremost. Worship is always God's decision to reach out and give himself to us. And Not necessarily that we're going to like it. Sometimes God gives himself to us, like Jonah, and we hate it. But it is still God's initiative. He gives himself to us. He comes to us. He makes the first move. Second part, it happens in our brokenness. So worship's not for perfect people. It's for Jonah's. It's for sinners. It's for people who can say, God, I need you to save me. I still do not want to go on mission with you. But I I can acknowledge that I need your help. I'm, I'm a bad husband. I'm a bad father. I'm a bad worker. I'm a bad friend and a bad neighbor. And I actually don't see any prospect of that getting fixed in the near term future. But God, I need your help. Worship is for us. It's, it's, for those of you, it's, it's for those of us who know. Like, God meets us in reality, right? The friendships where it's just all laughs and good times, that's not real. So you, some of you have friendships like that, and like you find out, like, you know somebody at work. You know, it's, it's kind of just like, it's good times, you know? It's just fun, and then you find out later that their marriage is in shambles. Or you find out later that they've been taking care of their elderly parent. Or they've been struggling with some sort of health issue. Or they're estranged from their kids. And you're shocked because you just never knew them. And what God wants is he wants to know you and me. And that means brokenness. You can't hide that stuff from God. He knows it anyway. He's going to track you down. The best move is just to say, God, I'm screwed up. Here it is. I need you to take this. I want to have a relationship with you and I need you to take this. Third thing, worship happens in Jesus. Now, we've talked a lot about Jesus and Jonah so far. We've talked a lot about the man asleep in the boat like Jesus was. We've talked a lot about Jesus and Matthew saying, Jonah is about me, he basically says. I will, be, I will give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah's about me. Where does Jesus show up in chapter 2? Uh, two, two things here that you can notice real quick here, and then I'm going to explain those and then we'll be done. Verse 4, Jonah's, Jonah's hope in verse 4 in the middle of his despair, is that yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. His hope in verse 7 is the same thing, is that my prayer will come to you in your holy temple. What is the temple? In the Old Testament, the temple is a building. It's actually the place where God lives. It's God's house. It's the one place on earth where God's special presence is. And because of that, it's the one and only place on earth where forgiveness of sins can happen. In the Old Testament, you couldn't get forgiveness of sins wherever you wanted to. You had to go to the temple to present a sacrifice. In Jonah's world, that's where God's at. That's where my sin's going to get forgiven. When Jesus shows up, though, he says, tear this physical building temple down, 
the one that Jonah's referring to, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Because he's talking about the temple of his body. What does he mean? He means this. Jesus is the place where God lives on earth. And because of that, Jesus is the one and only place where forgiveness of sins can happen. Jesus is in Jonah too, because Jesus is the new temple. This is where Jonah goes, and this is where Jonah gets forgiveness of sins. Worship will happen when you meet with God in Jesus Christ, and He comes and connects with your brokenness and says, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save your life. I'm going to forgive all your sins, but I'm also going to cleanse you from all your sins. How does that happen in the book of Jonah? Everybody gets saved, right? Jonah gets saved. He's not even like really wanting it. He's running away from it, and God still saves him. The Ninevites don't even know that they need saved until Jonah shows up. doesn't make Jonah happy. But everybody gets saved. Why is this? Because God has determined that his temple is going to spread over the whole world. God has determined that he's going to create a universe of people who worship him. He's determined that he's going to fix all of creation. And he's going to fix all of our problems. And he's going to do it by meeting us in our brokenness with his son, Jesus Christ. And that's worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us and we thank you for uh, coming and meeting with us. Uh, some of us even showed up at church today and not even really expecting to meet with you. And I pray that you would make yourself real. And whatever our emotional states are, our apathy or our pain or our happiness to be here, whatever it is, God, meet with us in those states in Jesus Christ and convict us one more time that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins, is going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and is going to rescue our entire lives, physically and spiritually, and rescue His entire creation, physically and spiritually, for His glory. We pray this in Your name. Amen.